Hey, my name is Jeremy Olam. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Redemption Gilbert. Uh, I am part of the team that oversees community ministries, our small group ministry here, as well as adult discipleship uh, here on the campus. And I'm really excited to be able to be here with you this morning. Uh, for those who don't know who I am, a little bit about me. My wife, Rachel, and I have been married for 15 years. We have two little boys, uh, Asher, who's in second grade and quickly approaching his eighth birthday, and uh, Beck, who's three and a half, and he is a completely crazy little meatball, but we love him, so that's good. Uh, and I know what you're thinking. How could someone this young and this handsome possibly have been married for 15 years? I understand the question. It's reasonable. I think it every morning when I look in the mirror. Here's how that happened. Uh, my wife and I got married when we were pretty young. We were 22 years old when we got married. We got married in my grandparents' little Lutheran church in our hometown of Manville, North Dakota, where we both grew up. It was a really sweet little story. I know you can save all the awes for later. There's a lot of those coming up. Um, I still remember that beautiful Saturday morning in May, very clearly in my mind. I was excited because I was getting to marry my best friend. Rachel and I had been best friends since we were 14 years old, and I was getting to marry her, and it was going to be a great day. Uh, the other thing that I remember is that uh, I was, had an incredibly overpowering wave of nerves that overcame me in the hour before that wedding. Uh, you know, all the hustle and bustle was going on, getting prepared, and uh, I was in a holding pattern. I was dressed, I was looking good, I was ready to go, and we still had an hour and a half to go till the ceremony started. Uh, and in those moments before we started, I'm going to be honest with you, I was totally freaking out. Um, I'm pacing the room that I'm in. My stomach's doing that weird thing where I want to eat everything in sight, but everything makes me want to throw up at the same time. I don't know if you've ever had this before. Uh, my hands started to shake. I started to sweat. And it was one of those nasty, cold, clammy, fear sweats. You know, the kind that predators can smell in their prey? I had one of those going on. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of what was just happening about two minutes ago right over there. But that's something else. I started to hyperventilate a little bit. You know, nothing says cool, calm, and collected like rapid, shallow breathing and dilated pupils. So I was really holding it together. Uh, I ended up wandering into the back of the church into a small little classroom, a Sunday school classroom, and sitting in a really small plastic chair and just breathing and praying and asking God to calm me down. Uh, the weird part about it is that morning, I knew maybe more than ever that the thing that I wanted more than anything was to marry Rachel. I was sure of it. If, in fact, if I was worried about anything, it was that whatever weird magical spell that had befallen her would wear off before I could actually seal the deal. She'd realize what kind of a bozo she was marrying. Um, I knew that what laid before me was the right thing. It was exactly the, what I wanted, but for whatever reason, the moment itself was super heavy, and it was freaking me out. I knew that once I walked down the aisle, once I made promises before my family and my friends and my God, that nothing would be the same. It was a line in the sand in my life, a point of no return that once crossed, everything would shift, and that my life would be permanently moving in a new direction. That point of no return was shocking to me at how much weight it was carrying as the gravity of that truth was crushing in on me. You know, to be fair, it was probably something to do with the fact that 
when you understand that the greatest decision you'll make in your life is out of the way by the time you're 22, that's kind of a bummer. And uh, the rest of your life ends up being this slide of like, nothing's going to live up to that, I guess. In the Gospel of Mark, where we've been going along, uh, we've been working through it. And today we're going to hit a point of no return. This morning, as we pick up the story on the outskirts of Jerusalem, uh, we're going to talk through a moment that's not the pinnacle of the story, uh, but it certainly qualifies as a game changer. And so we're going to go to the scripture and look what we have. We're going to pick up the story in Mark chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be up here on the screen so you can read along. It's a large section, so buckle up, folks. Starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those that were standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple And began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's take a moment and pray and ask that God would give us clarity this morning and teach us through his spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time we've been able to dedicate over the past few months to the study of the Gospel of Mark. God, it has drawn us near to Jesus whom we love and allowed us to see who he was and what he taught. God, I pray that this morning would be an opportunity to learn. And I pray that more than learning, it would be an opportunity to change and be transformed by your spirit. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We love him. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
So this is it. This is the moment where we begin to accelerate towards the apex of the story. We find that Jesus and his disciples have arrived at the outskirts of Jerusalem. Uh, They're on the edge of town. They're on the Mount of Olives, which is just across a small valley from the city of Jerusalem. Uh, They've arrived in Gilbert to Jerusalem's Phoenix. Okay, so that gives you an idea in your head. Now, his first order of business is the recruitment of a young donkey, and he sends two of his disciples out on a mission to gather him. They bring the donkey back. The disciples put their coats on his back to make a makeshift saddle of some sort, and Jesus mounts up. Now, this activity most likely does not go unnoticed. After all, Jesus is far from unknown in this area. This is the home of Mary and Martha. Jesus has spent a bunch of time in their home over the last few years, and so uh, most likely people know that Jesus is here and he's drawing a crowd. And it would have been a much larger crowd than normal because, after all, this is the beginning of the Passover week. Passover is a week-long celebration uh, of God's rescue of the people from slavery in Egypt. And it was celebrated for a week every spring in Israel. This was a Super Bowl of festivals for the Jewish people. And it would draw pilgrims from all over the region who would descend on the city and on the temple uh, to be able to worship and to celebrate and to participate in the sacrifices that would happen at the end of the week. And to give you an idea of the kind of crowd we're talking about here, Jerusalem typically was estimated to have a population of about 50,000 people. But during the week of Passover, that would swell to nearly 400,000 as almost the entire region would descend upon the city. You can imagine what kind of chaos this would bring with people jamming into the city and into the temple. One question that we have to ask here is why the little donkey, right? I mean, it would be very easy Uh, for us to overlook this detail or to misunderstand and be confused by it. Uh, But we have to wonder why the little donkey. It certainly can't be because riding a tiny donkey looks cool. You can imagine what it looks like bebopping along on this little donkey, right? It probably looks kind of silly. Why in the world would he do this? If we look into the Old Testament to the prophet of Zechariah, we find this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This passage of scripture from the prophet would have been extremely well known to Jesus and to the disciples and to everyone else, most likely, who was arriving in the city. And it was sending a signal to them that the king of Israel had arrived and he was humble and small, and riding on the back of a donkey. And as he enters the city and rides up the streets through the main gate, here comes the rightful king of the world. And the crowds sing a song. This would have been a common hymn that they sang from Psalm 118 that says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It tells that Jesus then enters the temple and he has a short visit in which he surveys the scene. He takes a look around and then he goes home. Him and his disciples leave and head back to Mary and Martha's house. The next morning, Jesus and the disciples get ready to head back to the temple, uh, but not before there's this strange pit stop that happens, right? There's a sidebar here about a fig tree. What in the world is going on with the fig tree? These two bookends in the scripture of the fig tree are a clue to what's going on when Jesus is in the temple. 
The fig tree, although it might mean nothing to us, meant a lot to the Jewish people because all through the Old Testament, the fig tree was a common image of the nation of Israel, a fruit tree that blessed the nations by calling them into its shade to enjoy its fruit and its blessing. And here, Jesus is judging not just the fig tree, but the nation. He's saying that it's not fruitful and it never will be. And when this curse is heard by the disciples, it is heavier and much deeper in scope than one single tree. He is judging the entire nation. Jesus returns to the Temple Mount. You have to imagine that he's under the careful, watchful eyes of the temple leadership as he enters. The leadership in the temple sat in a covered patio high above the temple court, some 40 feet above, overlooking directly the court of the Gentiles. This was the part of the temple that was set aside for foreigners, for outsiders, for non-Jewish people. And actually, it was the largest part of the temple structure. It was some six football fields in size. You can imagine how big it is. It's huge, and it's jam-packed with vendors, salesmen, money changers. And at the base of the portico of the leadership, this is all going on. They're selling sacrificial animals. They're selling uh, souvenirs and food to the audience's who are coming. There are money changers because you need a special temple-approved coinage to buy your sacrificial animal. What a perfect opportunity to skim a little extra off the top of this whole deal. And in the midst of the scene is the moment, right? This is the point of no return. From here, everything else accelerates over the remaining week toward Jesus' death. This is Jesus pulling the pin on a grenade and tossing it. And from here on out, we're just counting down the seconds until it explodes. He walks into the middle of the court. I imagine the leadership of the temple coming to the edge, to the railing, looking down, wondering, what is this troublemaker going to do? I imagine Jesus calmly and resolutely looking up and meeting their gaze. A steely, silent moment shared between them. And then he reaches underneath the nearest table and flips it over. And he begins turning over tables, chasing vendors out of the courts, whipping animals and starting mini stampedes with the thousands of sheep that are there. He begins to instigate chaos to express his extreme displeasure with what they had turned the house of God into. And then the text says, and he begins teaching them. There's this moment in the movie Gladiator, I don't know if you've seen it, but Russell Crowe is captured and he is forced into gladiator combat Uh, by the leadership that is there. And there's a scene in the movie where they they put Russell Crowe into the gladiator arena and they put eight or ten other gladiators, their best fighters, up against him to essentially take him out and get rid of the problem. And Russell Crowe, being Russell Crowe and kind of awesome, manages to dispatch all eight or ten of these guys in like 30 seconds. Dispatch is a really nice way of saying kills them. And their bodies are strewn all over the arena. And then he throws down his swords and he turns to the leadership looking down on him. And he says, are you not entertained? This is the kind of teaching that I envision Jesus giving in this moment. I don't think he's sitting down at a table and having a nice gentle talk. I envision as the chaos is swirling around him, him turning to the leadership above him and say, is it not written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. 
this confrontation has to be overwhelming. And the moment cements in the minds of the priests and the scribes that this Jesus must be dealt with. He's crossed the point of no return. There's no turning back. And from here, everything ticks down towards the murder of Jesus at the hands of these men. What I'd like to do for the remainder of our time together is spend some time looking at some of the things that I think Jesus saw in the temple that angered him and disappointed him so much to see what we can learn from them. And I think that we can find some warnings and some encouragement for ourselves in what Jesus saw there. The first thing that Jesus saw was that the temple had lost its grip on grace. Uh, my wife's parents, my in-laws, they live on a house in Minnesota on a lake in, in uh, west central Minnesota uh, on a lake there. They live in the house that Rachel's grandfather built in the 60s, uh, and it's just a couple dozen feet from the water's edge. It is an absolutely beautiful spot, and we get the blessing of being able to go as a family every summer. My wife and kids um, went and spent a whole month there this summer. It's great. It's awesome. We love it. Uh, Rachel actually used to spend every summer at the lake living with her grandparents when she was a kid. And so she has very fond memories of it. Um, and last summer, Asher was about six, and we were there hanging out, and we decided to go through the old shed that's there on the property and see what was in there. And in the midst of our investigation, Rachel found, she goes, look, it's my first set of water skis. And there was these totally sweet Snoopy water skis over in the corner. She's like, those are the water skis that I learned to water ski on when I was like Asher's age. And so, of course, almost instantly the plan is hatched. We're going to teach Asher to water ski on mom's old water skis. It's going to be the sweet moment. Tears will flow. <gasps> those are the Oz. Remember, I was telling you they're coming. Anyway, so we, we get the boat set up. We find the tow rope, and we get Asher in the water, and... Um, Rachel's in the water with him in the shallows there by the shore, and she's got him in his floaty, and she's trying to help him get his, you know, tips of his skis up, and she's like, don't worry, it's going to be super easy, just hold on to the rope, and it'll just pull you right up on the, wa on the water. So I'm in the boat with her dad, and we're like, are you ready? And he's like, yeah. And so I go, punch it, and he hits the gas, and instantly Asher goes into Superman mode, and he's dragging behind the back of the boat, right? And I'm like, oh boy, surely he'll let go. Nope. He holds on to the rope as there's a curtain of water coming over his face as he's being dragged through. And through the water, I can actually see the terror on his face. And we drag him for like a hundred feet before I can finally go, oh, this is bad. Stop, stop. And her dad stops the boat and Asher bobs to the top and he's coughing and he's crying and we come around and I say, hey, buddy, buddy, why didn't you just let go of the rope? He said, you didn't tell me I could let go. <laughs> it never occurred to him that it was even a possibility that he would let go of the rope. When Jesus walked into the temple and looked at what was going on there, he was appalled to see that what had been established as God's dispensing grace to the world, it had become a crass transactional duty. And the people that were coming to the temple with money in hand were there to purchase their yearly forgiveness voucher. And the temple mount was filled with vendors taking their cut from every sale. What was intended to be a miraculous and momentous reminder of how God had found them when they were lost and rescued them out of bondage and how he had saved them from a fate worse than death and then instituted the temple and the sacrificial system to keep them close to the Heavenly Father, to continually dispense 
grace in the form of forgiveness and a covering for their sin. They had completely let go of their grip on grace. It had become a gross, assumptive misunderstanding about what was being offered to them at the temple in the first place. Grace offered of God is not a transactional event. God offers freely, and we receive without cost. Church, how often do our hearts fall into the exact same trap? The grace that we've received through the life and death of Jesus Christ becomes a bargaining chip in our hearts. We begin to decide whether we deserve this grace or not based on the size of our spiritual bank account. We look and say, if we filled this account with some lucrative spiritual deposits, then we can convince ourselves that we deserve God's grace and that he must because we're worthy. And we begin to count up what we've done to increase in the eyes of God. And we begin to understand why he would love someone like me. After all, I prayed every day this week for 30 minutes. I read my Bible every day this week. Well, five out of seven days, but that's pretty good. you got to admit. I gave money to that shady-looking guy in the Walmart parking lot who was most likely lying to me about needing a bus ticket and he was going to use it to buy drugs or booze or something. But I gave him that money and I didn't even judge him when I was doing it. I told two people about Jesus this week. That second lady didn't like it so much when I said Jesus wouldn't approve of her language when she spilt that hot coffee in her lap. But, hey, any evangelism is good evangelism. That's what I say. I've been killing it this week, and when that communion tray comes around, I'm taking two crackers. (laughs) When we do well spiritually we can very quickly begin to presume on God's grace that he's giving it to us because we are worthy of it. That our flush spiritual bank account has afforded us not only the spiritual goods and services we desire, but that if we make enough deposits, we'll be able to buy forgiveness and acceptance and eternal life from God. Not only that, we'll be able to buy the things we really want, the add-ons, happiness, a good family, Health, wealth, influence, power, control. Listen, love of God is good and all, but comfort and ease of life, that's what I'm really here to buy. The transactional approach to God's grace is the default heart of mankind to attempt to justify ourselves before God. Our minds may know that it's impossible, but our heart tells us over and over again that we can do it. Church, when we gather together, we must continually remind ourselves constantly of the truth of the the gospel. That nothing we offer brings us acceptance to God. To pretend that somehow our pitiful attempts at justification or salvation would earn us what God has freely given is offensive to a holy God who has offered us everything. The response in your heart should be the exact same response that Jesus had in the temple courts. Turn over the tables of spiritual commerce set up in your heart. Drive out the salesmen that have been selling you a transactional approach to the throne of heaven. Cry out into the dark corners of your heart that you will no longer be chained to the lie that you can earn God's love. Instead, grab tight to the truth that you're accepted because God loved you and he will never let you go. 
The second thing that Jesus saw in the temple was that the temple had lost its missional identity. I have two little boys. Uh, I mentioned them earlier. Asher, who is almost eight. Beck, who's three and a half. Their favorite activity with me is uh, to wrestle. When I come home at the end of the day, it is very common to hear this phrase, Dad, can we wrestle your face off? I don't know really where this came from, but what that means is that we are going to wrestle and it is going to be intense. And that is starting to hurt me because Asher was just at the doctor recently. He just crossed the 65-pound barrier, and that kid can actually hurt me. My neck is sore this morning because of a wrestling match that we had. And so on the days that I can pull it together, we get our face wrestling on, and we start the grappling. And usually this means that I'm focusing a lot on Asher because, like I said, he could actually hurt me. Uh, and Beck is kind of the gnat that buzzes around and you know, occasionally bites really hard. <laughs> And so I'm fighting them off, and it's a great time, and I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do with my boys. But almost every single wrestling match, Beck will jump off the dog pile at some moment, and he will race out of the room. And he disappears for two or three minutes as I'm wrestling with Asher. And then he pops around the corner of the room, and he jumps out, and he says, Ta-da! Usually this is just him in his underoos (laughs) and some sort of a superhero mask, usually Spider-Man, maybe Batman. Depends on what he grabbed. And then he begins to run at me at full speed, and he does a cannonball directed at my head. And I'm trying to be a good dad. I want to play into his fantasy here, right? So I say, oh my gosh, Spider-Man is here. I can't believe Spider-Man showed up to fight. This is crazy. Where's Beck? He would want to see this. He would never believe that Spider-Man is here with us. Spider-Man, you're too tough for me. And I play it up and ham it up, and then pretty soon Beck will lift up his mask, and he'll look at me and go, Daddy, it's me. (laughs) As if somehow I've forgotten who he really was. The second thing that Jesus confronts in the temple is that Israel had completely lost who they were called to be. They had forgotten who God had created them to be. At the very beginning of the story, in the far left-hand side of your Bible, right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 12, this is what we find as God comes to Abraham and says, I will make a promise to you. Here's what he says. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He says he will bless him so that he will be a blessing. The distribution of grace that is given to Abraham and his descendants was never intended to end with them and their good. They were to be a blessing conduit. Through them, all of the world would see and receive blessing. Later in 1 Kings, we read this. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you in order that all the peoples of earth may know your name and fear you as do your people, Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built Is called by your name. The foreigner, the outsider, the Gentile was to be welcomed into the community of faith. He was to hear of God's blessing to his people and be inexorably drawn into the shadow of the Almighty. The drawing name and the fame of God of Israel was to change the heart and bless the foreigner as well, which would in turn increase the fame and the name of God in the lands that surrounded them. Spreading his name further and further around the world. When Jesus entered the temple, 
The place that his objection boils over is in the court of the Gentiles. The largest portion of the Temple Mount had been dedicated to the gathering of the nations to hear and see and experience the true worship of Yahweh. Instead of a worshipful place dedicated to prayer and welcoming the nations close, he finds a place overrun with commerce and thievery. Instead of love of a neighbor, he finds contempt for them. In a place where they should be closest to the true God of the world, they're held at arm's length by shopkeepers and money changers and crowds and the stench of countless animals. As Jesus raises his eyes to the temple leadership high above the courts, Looking down, he sees not eyes concerned for the sojourner, the outsider, the foreigner, but eyes concerned with greed and protecting Jewish purity. Their mission to the world had been turned into a mission against the world. They were so frightened and angered by the Samaritans that surrounded them and the Romans that lived in their midst that they had built walls in their minds and in their hearts to protect themselves. They saw the world not as lost sheep who were in need of a shepherd, but as a challenge to their rightful place in the world, a foe to be toppled. The mission that God had given them had been abandoned, and it enraged Jesus. Church, we are a people who have been blessed to be a blessing. The transformation that God has been gracious enough to show us in our hearts and lives is a gift for those of us who love and trust in Jesus, for those of us who have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and continue to see the blessing of living under the reign of King Jesus. It has happened to us so that we can turn and face the world around us. God has been at work in his people, shaping us, changing us, blessing us for the sake of of the world that is lost. Our changed lives become a beacon of hope in a weary world. What the church has to offer is a transformation of the very nature of humanity. There is no place else on the planet where the world can be offered a transcending experience with the living God. The ability of a life that is shaped by Jesus, the grand creator, to tell the world that he can fix everything, is unbelievable. We've been called to live a life that is constantly working against the broken nature of the world, the thing that sin has destroyed, and point to Jesus as the only one that offers them any hope of making it right again. Our marriages, if they are loving and good and kind and gentle, are so, so that the world around us can see that Jesus makes all things right. Our families, if they're honoring and caring and purposeful and restful, are so that we we can say to the world, the thing that sin has broken can be made right if you live under our shepherd. Our jobs, if they're done well, are a witness. Our love, if it is true, is a witness. Our service, if it is sacrificial, is a witness. Our joy is a witness. Our community is a witness. With everything we have, we have to be a vision to the world around us of what living for Jesus looks like. Listen, I I completely understand that the surrounding culture continues to pull further and further away from the standards and the morality that Jesus has called us to. I get it. 
I understand that as goodness begins to be redefined more and more from what benefits society as a whole and benefits the other to what benefits individuals at any cost, it can set panic into the hearts of believers. We have to ask the hard questions. What does it mean when the Supreme Court makes a ruling that reframes thousands of years of agreement across countless cultures about a topic like marriage? What does that mean for the church? What does it mean to live in a culture that allows for the extended horrors of abortion? What does it mean for the church? For too long, we've been able to rest in the idea that somehow we are the majority culture. Mainstream American culture has been for centuries shaped with a distinctly Christian flavor, and the church has been guilty in many ways of losing our missional identity. We had little or no need to drive forward the mission because we had won. After all, anybody who disagrees with our normal, shiny, happy Christian lives is a freak, an outsider, a weirdo, a degenerate. I think we're fa- we were failing in our mission then to the world, but at least we could pretend it was all right. But church, as the American culture and the world begins to pull further and further away from the church, we can no longer ignore our place as a countercultural force We are no longer the culture. And we have to be willing to regain our place as a strange minority who live in a way that doesn't make any sense to the world that's around us because we love Jesus. This slide, I get it, will most likely be bad for America as a nation. But this can be wonderful for the church if we lean into our missional calling in the world. We are a missional outpost. We are a changed people who need to call out in pure voices into the darkness, come this way. This is the way to the light. This is the way to freedom. Look what Jesus can do in the lives of people who love him and submit themselves to him. That's our opportunity. The last thing is that the temple had lost its heart of worship. Uh, It's mid-August, so you know what that means. Christmas shopping. Christmas is starting, the stuff is starting to go up in stores already. Can you believe this, right? Christmas, uh, one of our holiest of moments, has now extended itself into a full six months ahead of it. Listen, I love Christmas. I like a good solid two weeks of Christmas. But... My kids haven't had a Halloween costume on yet. I don't want to see it, okay? The problem that we have is that what is the beautiful part of Christmas is getting absorbed and sucked into this giant machine of American culture. And my fear, even for myself and my family, is that what Christmas is really about gets lost in the shuffle of that, in great things, like decorating my house and putting up Christmas lights in my kid's bedroom, like dinners with friends, like presents. It's the reason that Christmas Eve service here at the church is so important to me personally. Because it allows me a moment just before Christmas actually arrives to remind myself of what this is all about, that this is a moment of worship. When Jesus walked into the temple, what he saw is that they had turned Christmas into Black Friday. What was the height of worship had been turned into some freakish demonic monster in which the temple activities no longer were about raising high the name of God and worshiping him. Instead, it was about the temple administrators 
standing high above the people, withholding their access to God and enriching themselves in the process. Worship had stopped being about God and become about them. We can never lose sight about what this is all about. A lost people who were found should worship. A blind people who were given sight should worship. A slave Enslaved people who were made free should worship. A dead people who were made alive should worship. A weary world who has been shown rest should worship. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 writes a letter to the church, and this is what he says. And he, Jesus, came and preached to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Church, we are the temple of the Lord and he is building us together and placing our foundation on Jesus. The Spirit binds us together and builds us into a place where God himself lives. Our lives, when they are submitted to God, are worship. Our hearts submitted to God are worship. Our families, our work, our recreation, our suffering, our joy, our homes, when they are submitted to God, are worship. Everything we do, Everything we are, our whole lives, are to be a living sacrifice to the holy and blameless one named Jesus who sits on the throne and is worthy of our praise because he has shown us grace and he has sent us on a mission to the world and we worship him with our lives because he's worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. God, we thank you for the place that you are building here and that you have seen fit to dwell among your people. God, we pray that we would be transformed by the Spirit into a place that is worthy to be called your home. God, let us be on mission to the world around us to show them the goodness of living under Jesus. We love him. We pray this in his name. Amen.